And I thought about uh, how best to frame our, you know, anchor our time of worship and celebration on Christmas Eve. My mind sort of reeled. I am uh, a Christmas enthusiast, so uh, the options from which to draw seemed quite endless for me. And then this occurred to me. Uh, it is a well-worn trope of fiction that audiences uh, should find a beloved supporting character um, in some amount of peril at some point in a three-act structured story. And whether or not that's exciting or cliche, such a character will steal themselves with the, face, with the faith that they have placed in the story's hero. The hero's goodness and capability is such that they will show up, they will rescue, and they will crush or vanquish or do away with evil. And so this endangered character will taunt the story's villain. They'll say things like, oh, you just wait until the hero gets here. You'll be sorry, that sort of thing. And of course, nearly as often as this trope is employed, it is similarly resolved with the predictable arrival of the hero in question. This is something that we call an advent in the English language. An advent is a noun that really just means the arrival of a notable person thing or event. Advent is not the resolution nor the conclusion of the story. The story, of course, isn't over. The battle itself is typically yet to be fought. The villain is yet to be dispatched. The victory yet to be realized in full. And yet the audience, like that supporting character in peril, is confident against all odds, realizing that we are now approaching the resolution. We are now approaching the rescue. And yes, there may be more fighting and more struggle, and perhaps something tragic may happen between now and then, but the advent of the hero is hope in the story, hope that evil will ultimately be defeated. And the story of humanity, according to the Bible, is also in many ways the story of someone in peril and of a hero who would save them. See, in the great story of the Bible, which is primarily exactly that narrative, Humanity is created in God's image to partner with their loving creator in bringing the raw potential of God's good world forward. And of course, if you know the story, humanity says no thanks. Uh, and as a result, evil is born into God's story and creation itself falls under the horrible spell of what the narrative describes as a curse. Um, in C.S. Lewis's beloved The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the curse is actually represented, by, in Narnia at least, by a seemingly everlasting winter. Of it, uh, Mr. Tumnus puts this way, it is winter in Narnia and has been for ever so long. Always winter, but never Christmas. And this is, of course, the important distinction. Always winter, but never Christmas, because Christmas is when everything changes. I have loved Christmas personally for as long as I can remember the season at all. And yet, as a small boy raised in the church, Christmas, in its truest sense, the reason for the season, as it were, was framed for me as a celebration of Jesus' birth, which it is, but it was a little more than that. It was essentially Jesus' birthday party. And while I thought it was perfectly fine and good that Jesus should have a birthday party, I couldn't help but devote the vast majority of my affection for, for Christmas to nearly every other aspect of the holiday. And it wasn't just presents, you know, presents of course were quite nice, but um, it was other things as well, as well. It was our ornament boxes down from the attic and our family gathered around a tree that would soon be decorated with lights as John Denver and the Muppets spun happily on the turntable. You know, the realization over time that my parents were happier to give than to receive. 
It was street lights adorned with ribbons and wreaths in our small town in southeast Georgia. It was Kevin McAllister's sleigh ride down the stairs. It was the never-ending quest to get a marshmallow in each sip of hot chocolate, though they drift from your mouth each time you tip the mug. Um, and so I thought, yeah, you know, happy birthday, Jesus. That's great. Now, if you'll excuse me, <laughs> it's time to see if Ralphie gets that dang BB gun or not. And what I did not know then, but now see so plainly, is the beauty of Advent so wonderfully entangled in even the trivia of the season. See, according to biblical scholarship, Luke was a fellow who had beheld many eyewitness accounts of a man that we call Jesus of Nazareth, and then he composed an account of Jesus' life, which we now describe as the Gospel of Luke. And in Luke's narrative, we begin in the ancient hills of Jerusalem, which is a place long described by the prophets of the Old Testament as the very location of God's eventual return to humanity. Yes, one day, God would return to Israel and he would become king over his people. And in Jerusalem's temple, at the beginning of Luke's narrative, a man called Zechariah, if you know the story, is stunned by this vision that he receives. A messenger of God, or an angel, if you like, promises to Zechariah and his wife, uh, elderly and infertile, though they were, uh, a son. And this beautiful event actually acts as a mirror reflecting the great ancestors of Israel, Abraham and Sarah, who way back in the beginning of the Bible's narrative were themselves old and infertile when they became parents to Isaac and the entire story of Israel. And Luke is essentially telling his readers that God is preparing to do something incredible once again through his people. And the miraculous son of Zechariah and his wife will be called John, the angel says. He will fulfill this really interesting prophetic promise of one who would come to prepare the way for Israel's king as Israel's king arrives to rule in Jerusalem forever. Now, of course, if you know the story's setting, this is something of a tall order because uh, as the angel of God was saying these things, the great pagan Roman empire ruled over Israel and over Jerusalem. So the gravity of this promise can hardly be overstated. In the midst of all this, Israel under the oppressive rule of the pagan Roman Empire, Zechariah gets a message from uh, an angel saying, God is on the way. Israel will be freed from the tyranny of oppression. The promises of the Old Testament are finally reaching the day of fulfillment. And then the question lingers, but how? And suddenly, Luke, the author of the, this biography of Jesus, transports the reader to an obscure region north of Jerusalem and draws our attention to a young girl called Maria, or Mary. So like Zechariah, Mary is visited by a messenger of God, an angel, and the angel delivers this incredible news that she is going to have a son, a son who will take the name Yeshua, or Jesus, which means Yahweh saves. Jesus will become that king over God's people forever and ever, which is itself an incredible enough statement, but this is only one weird aspect of it, so to which Mary replies with a very reasonable question, how's that supposed to happen? Because I'm a virgin. And the angel tells her that God's spirit, which in the story of God is the very spirit responsible for the creation of the cosmos, all life therein, this spirit will generate life in Mary's womb, though she is a virgin. God is binding himself to humanity. And in this poor, backwoods, obscure, nobody of a teenage girl, in a moment, becomes mother of the king. And Mary is so taken by the beauty of this that she actually crafts a song about it. And in it, she observes the way that God brings down the rulers, the wealthy, the powerful, so that he may exalt the poor 
and the insignificant. That's what God is like. And as the story goes on, a decree dealing with new taxes forces Mary and her fiancé to travel south from their home in Nazareth to a city called Bethlehem in order to be registered in the city of their family lineage. I'm sure lots of you guys know the story. And consequently, Bethlehem is predictably crowded with visitors uh, to the same end, and Mary and Joseph are forced to take up temporary residence in something of an animal shelter. And there, Mary begins labor. She gives birth to the king, the long-awaited king of Israel and the entire world. And Luke writes that not far from there, there were shepherds who were also visited by angels. These angels invite the shepherds to attend the celebration of the birth of the king. And this is also really weird. Shepherds in the first century were what you and I would think of as the very bottom rungs of the social ladder. They were ostracized and isolated from society. They were even forbidden to participate in certain religious practices in Jerusalem. And yet, when angels show up to proclaim the advent of the hero, they do so first to shepherds, which is really weird. The long-awaited king of Israel, the savior of the entire world is finally here. He's nearby. You guys can actually go see him. And how will they know it's the king? Well, it's easy to spot. He'll be wrapped up and sleeping in this filthy feeding trough for animals, which invites the question again, what kind of king is this? What kind of king is this supposed to be? God's kingdom is first revealed to the obscure, the insignificant, the poor, the powerless, the dirty, those on the margins of society. And yet, this is, in the story, the advent of the hero. My son's storybook Bible puts it this way. Everything was ready. The moment God had been waiting for was here at last. God was coming to help his people just as he promised in the beginning. But how would he come? What would he be like? What would he do? Mountains would have bowed down. Seas would have roared. Trees would have clapped their hands. But... The earth held its breath. As silent as snow falling, he came in. And when no one was looking in the darkness, he came. Mary and Joseph named him Jesus, Emmanuel, which means God has come to live with us. Because, of course, he had. More powerful than the wealthy, the lavish kings, the educated, and the elite, this baby sat in a feeding trough, born to poor teenagers out of wedlock, First visited by the very bottom of society's barrel, this hero will bring the wealthy and corrupt down from their seats of power and exalt the poor and the insignificant and the powerless. He will undo evil once and for all. He will make good on the long-nurtured promises of God, and he will undo the curse once and for all. Amen. In 1719, as Isaac Watts described the power of Christmas in the often overlooked third stanza of his beloved carol, Joy to the World, in it he wrote, No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And so, for any and all of its benign pagan influence, the Yule log and the tree and the wreath and so on, a charitable hope is often said to permeate humanity during the season in which we have selected to celebrate Christmas. The nephew of Ebenezer Scrooge in Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol puts it really well when he says this, I have always thought of Christmas time as a good time, 
a kind, forgiving, charitable, pleasant time. The only time I know of in the long calendar of the year when men and women seem by one consent to open their shut up hearts freely and to think of people below them as if they really were fellow passengers to the grave and not another race of creatures bound on other journeys. In 1967, Stevie Wonder put it like this. Someday at Christmas, men won't be boys playing with bombs like kids play with toys. One warm December, our hearts will see a world where men are free. In 1984, Brian Adams sang it like this. We've waited all through the year for the day to appear when we could be together in harmony. You know the time will come, peace on earth for everyone, and we can live forever in a world where we are free. Let it shine on you and me. In 2003, atheist songwriter Wayne Coyne wrote this, if I could stop time, it would be a frozen moment just around Christmas when all of mankind reveals its truest potential and there is sympathy for the suffering and the world embraces peace and love and mercy instead of power and fear. All of these things find their source and ultimate authorship in God, in the God of hope who comes to break the curse. What an egregious misfortune it is then that so-called Christians would deform the good name of Christmas profaned until it becomes an awful shouting match, a tedious squabbling over the semantics of words and decorations in a season marked by the observance of God's self-sacrificial generosity, a tragic irony eclipses the Western world wherein those who claim to serve a generous God snarl and snatch at sacred things as if they were plastic toys hoarded by selfish children. Do not wish a happy holiday, wish a Merry Christmas. This season is ours, the world is ours, the customs are ours. Indeed, the very curse itself in these times becomes ours, the broken brotherhood and sisterhood of humanity in which common welfare and charity and mercy and forbearance and benevolence are exchanged for a sad and fearful pride." As if any amount of paganism or indifference could somehow undo the spirit of Christmas. As if the goodness of the season were somehow contingent on a plastic nativity or Merry Christmas on the lips of a retailer. Let the world beyond the doors of the church dispense with the carols and well wishes and decorations. Most of them we stole from pagans anyway. Hope is still there. And from that hope springs a wonderfully temporary anticipation for our hope is on a coming day and on a coming day it will be brought to completion and to fruition when the awful thorns and brambles of the dark curse will be pulled up from the world by the roots and Jesus, the mighty king, God with us will crush the curse in triumph and sin and evil and suffering and injustice and death will be no more. And we know this because of Christmas, because of the advent of hope. I am actually overcome with a kind of sadness every 26th of December. On that day, you know, a once lovely evergreen is dragged away bare, at least at our house, because um, we are very efficient people. Um, and we remember the season to keep it holy. We don't let it just peter out, you know. Uh, windows festooned with garlands and lights are stripped away ordinary and plain glass ornaments of red and silver and gold are packed into their 11-month hibernation. 
And the carols sung daily are abruptly silenced. The ghost of Christmas present goes quietly into his smiling grave to join his thousands of brothers, if you know the story. But for the disciples of Jesus, hope continues to glow like a candle which cannot be snuffed. We gather around its gentle flicker as a reminder of hope and of the promise of God. No, it has not been brought to full fruition, not yet anyway, but the hero has arrived. The story, of course, isn't over. The final battle itself is yet to be fought. The villain is yet to be dispatched in full. The victory yet to be realized in full. And yet we remember at Christmas that we are now approaching the rescue. Yes, there may be more fighting and more struggle. Perhaps even something tragic may happen between now and then. But the advent of the hero is hope. Hope that evil will be defeated. So in joyful celebration of the season and with hope, let us say with one another, Merry Christmas. Amen.